Father, I thank you for the privilege to be here this morning, for being able to worship you and just being together. And, and uh, even through some of the, the technical glitches, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we are your body and we're gathered to, to be together, to love you and to love each other and to just walk in a manner that pleases you. And Father, uh, may our time together just be rich and rewarding and sweet and and God, I just pray now that uh, as we fall under your word, that it would transform us to the image of our creator, that we might walk in the newness of life and all that goes with that. And I pray all this in, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of our partner ministries, go-to ministries, they've been involved in Haiti, actually. After the earthquake there, I was thinking about that this week in light of the uh, stuff going on in the Philippines. And, you know, after a tragedy happens, there's a big, a large amount of work that needs to go on in a country to uh, rebuild it. And uh, GoTo Ministry has been involved in Hades, and, and they've been involved in a thing they, they've called it Haiti Cure, which is really trying to go into that country and not make uh, people just dependent on foreign aid but to help develop what they call the people, their pastors, their communities, and, and really trying to invest to see uh, the country uh, repair itself, so to speak. And, uh, and it's been an incredible project, and following them on this has been pretty intense. And, and I was talking with the director of that project a while back, and I said, you know, what, what have you learned in terms of doing these kind of huge, huge projects like this? And he said, you know what, Steve, the thing that has hit me more than anything else is that when you, when you go into a situation like this, it's not really about aid. It's not really about aid. It's ultimately about relationships. And I remember thinking, what, I wonder what that really means. And so in pressing him to explain himself, you know, he, he was trying to explain the fact that, that the real needs on the ground are the fact that people's relationships are broken to God, they're broken to each other, they're broken in the global community, and things are just bad all around. And, and, and you can just pour money onto a problem, right? You could just pour money and make people dependent on money. But, but really what the issue is is going in and, and lifting people in their hearts and their spirits to, to see God and to be restored in their families and, be, and, and see churches emerge where communities are growing together and people are growing in love for one another, and, and, and when that occurs, change begins to take place in a community. And so he said, really, what they've discovered is that they've been about relationships, building relationships with people, helping people repair their relationships within the community, within their marriages, within, within their churches, and, uh, and I got to thinking about that, you, you know, I got to thinking about what all that meant, and I started thinking, you know, he's right, I think that's true in all of life. You know, if you, if you think about it, really at the end of the day, if, if your relationship with God isn't in a good place, don't you just start like withdrawing from church or the people of God? Like, don't you just start feeling the, the desire to cocoon yourself because you just don't feel right? Or if you're having a hard time at home, isn't it hard to engage at work sometimes if relationships at home are bad? Or, or if relationships at work are bad, isn't it hard sometimes to be at home? and to be engaged and focused on your family at home. I mean, across the board, you begin to realize that relationships are really key. Relationships are huge. And, and then you start thinking about this. And you start thinking, yeah, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, all these relationships broke down. Relationships between God and man broke down. Suddenly man says, I don't want to follow you, God. I want to do it my own way. 
And God says, you know what? That, that kind of attitude deserves my wrath and my punishment. And so that relationship begins to break down. Relationships between Adam and Eve broke down. They suddenly have conflict. Relationship between their children really break down, right? You got murder going on. And then relationships within the culture begin to break down. By the time you get to Tower of Babel, God's dividing everything up by, by cultures and languages. And suddenly there's no unity there anymore. And you begin to realize that a large portion of life is kind of relationship slash sin management. We are going from one area of conflict to the next to the next, dealing with this, and that really can sometimes sum up our week. It's conflict after conflict after conflict after conflict. But then the reality of the gospel is that Jesus has come to restore those relationships. Here's the great news of the gospel is that you're restored to God through Christ. And that's gone. And you get to be restored to each other in Christ. And the glory of Christ is that He's the great restorer of all of those things that were broken because of sin. And so you begin to realize that, that when you start understanding Christ and the gospel and what it means to be in Christ, you begin to realize that, that the restoration of all the relationships come into play here. That's what Christ is about. That's the essence of this. Now, the reason why we're talking about this is that we're here in Colossians chapter 3. And last week, talked about the fact that the focus of the month of November has been to, to engaging relationships. And we are to engage distinctively as a Christian in all of our relationships. And, and as we engage in those relationships, we have to realize that, that engaging in relationships is really a gospel issue. Understanding what it means to be in Christ is the key to your relationship with God and your relationships with each other. And I wanted to, before we came up to the Christmas season, just take some time and unpack Colossians chapter 3 so that we could really engage this passage so that we could understand what it means to engage each other distinctively as Christians, especially as you come across up to the holiday season, which can be a bit difficult to engage, as you have to then sometimes deal with family members that can be a bit complex to deal with. And so we look, when looking here, we were picking up here in verse 5, and, and we're looking here at what Paul what I like to say, Paul's telling us how to, how to live or act like a dead man. We looked last week what it means to live and act like a live person. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? And now what we're going to look at is now, since I've been raised with Christ, what does it mean that I'm dead to the world? And if I want to understand how to walk distinctively as a Christian, I want to understand what it means to be dead to this world. Very practical passage. In fact, what Paul does is he lists two, two groups of sins when Jeff read that either, earlier, I'm sure you saw, there was this first group of sins and then a second group of, of, of sins, of issues, struggles that people have. And, and each one of these groups are actually divided up. The first group deals with our relationship with God. And he's saying, okay, these are the things that ultimately get in the way of your relationship with God. You're dead to those things. And the second group is your relationship with others. And he says, these are the issues that you deal with in your, in, in your own heart, that get in the way of your relationship with others, let's deal with those. And what he's saying is, listen, in both of these issues with our relationship with God and our relationship with others, you've got to deal with these things. You've got to deal with these. You've got to understand how to view them 
so that you can engage God and others distinctively as a Christ-centered Christian. So that's what we're going to look at today. We'll see our relationship with God and with others. And, and what I want you to get today is something very simple, simple statement. I want you to understand what it means to walk as a restored Christian. So I want you to think about this, that being in Christ means that your relationships with God and others have been restored. So, how should that practically impact the way you live? That's what we're going to look at today. That's what I want you to see. And what you're going to see is that being a restored Christian does not mean that everything's going to go perfect, it's all going to go great, and you're never going to struggle. It just means that you will know what to do when the struggle comes upon you. What to do when the struggle comes. Not that you're going to kind of go through life, everything's perfect, but what to do. So let's look here. Let's look at our relationship with God first. Notice verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, what you have to notice is that the ESV has the word therefore in there, a few words in. Some other translations have it first. But you've got to notice that it's there. And remember our little Bible study tip. Whenever you see a therefore in a text, you're to do more than ask what it's there for. What you're supposed to do is recognize an application's coming. A statement has been made, and now the author is going to apply that statement to your life. So what is the statement he's just made? In verses 1 through 4, he says, You've been raised with Christ. You've been somehow, through the miracle of God's grace, connected to that moment of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when Christ died, your sins were being covered. When Christ rose, you were given life. And therefore, you're now seeking that life. You're obsessing. We talked about last week, obsessing on Jesus. I'm no longer obsessing on my life and my problems. When that comes up, I'm beginning to say, Jesus, I want to think about you. I want to let you define this moment. I want to obsess on you. And so he says, listen, you've been raised up with Christ. And so we are seeking Christ, his life, who he is, that is filling who we are. So then he says, therefore, now let me apply this to you. Since you've been made alive, my application is then, put to death all of those desires that well up inside of you that are of the things of the earth, which means everything that's not of Christ. So that means this, your natural reactions to situations are wrong. So kill them. Kill them. Put them to death. When he says put them to death, you can think about it this way. It means just actually, literally chopping it at its root. So some people read this and they say, okay, the key to life then is to become a monk. I'm going to go out in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to put myself in a cave in the middle of nowhere. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to not have to deal with anybody. I'll just be alone in a cave. I'll have candles and my Bible and food. I don't know where I'll get it from, but I'm sure it'll be there. And I'll just hang out. And then, but you see, you know what that's doing? That's just plucking the head off the dandelion. Right? I mean, I can go out in the front yard and tell the kids just to pluck all the heads off the dandelion. Say, look, we weeded. Right? We didn't weed. Right? We got to get to the root of this thing. That's what he's saying. I want you to chop this thing at the root. I want you to destroy this. 
So, you've been raised up with Christ, which means there's good news. You have the ability to destroy the things of the earth within you. You actually can do it. There's actually hope. As you read through this passage today, your natural reaction will be to go, ow, ow, ow. That's totally me. Wow. I just feel wretched. Okay, that's okay. But don't stop there. Then go from ow, ow, ow. I want you to do this. I want you to go, wow, wow, wow. I know that's silly. But here's the reason why I want you to go from ow to wow. You go from ow first, recognizing, yes, this is really painful. But then, wow, Jesus made a way for me to be free from this. It's so cool. So don't stop at the ow. Go from ow to wow. Okay, good. So if at any moment you feel the need to say an amen, instead of saying amen, you can go, wow. And that would be very appropriate. Okay, because this is really good stuff. So how do you then put this to death? How do we actually put this to death? Well, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to identify the root. Right? I've got to know where the root is, right? Sometimes I can see a, a weed in my yard and I can just try to cut it, but then sometimes that weed is grown away and I want to get down to where it is and I want to dig it out at its root. So I've got to identify the root. And so he's going to give me some of the roots to the issues of the things that get in the way of my relationship with God. I've been made alive in Christ, but my tendency is to not find my joy, my pleasure, my fulfillment in Christ and in God my tendency is to want to find my joy and my fulfillment in my flesh. So that means I've got to then say, okay, if that's my tendency, what is the root of my flesh? He lists five things. Notice this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And now he's going to list it. First one is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. That is just the perversion of intimacy. God designed intimacy to be between a man and a woman in the context of a marriage covenant relationship. That's what he designed it to be. That's it. Thank you, Lynn. That was an amen, by the way, for her, just so you know. Okay? That's what he designed. Now, you go outside of that, you go outside of that, and what happens? You're sinning. It's just that clear. So why does he say this? Well, you see, what happens is, in my world, or in our world, what I mean is not me personally, but in all of our worlds, in the society we live in, we like to say this, God, it's just about what makes me happy. Right? Isn't that the, the argument for people who want to go outside of that? They'll want to say, well, listen, if it makes me happy, I should be able to do it. If it makes me fulfilled, I should be able to do it. If it, if it brings me pleasure, go for it, as long as it doesn't hurt someone. Well, you stop and say, wait a minute. God did not design us to find our pleasure outside of Him. Right? He didn't. And so what happens is we find our pleasure in the way God designed the world. And so He says, you know what? You're dead to that. You're dead to finding your pleasure outside the way God designed this to be. He goes on. Impurities, the next one. Impurity is really just the same thing as, as uh, sexual morality, but it's, it's just one step deeper because now what happens is it starts to impact the behavior of somebody to where suddenly they just start to act. It's just more of like uh, uh, you're moving from, from maybe a worldview or an action to now suddenly a, a person. It starts to take over the person. They become impure. They begin to start acting 
all their actions begin to start reflecting that impurity. We could say it this way, uh, sexual, morali sexual Im immorality is perversion, impurity is a pervert. Okay, you can track with that. Because of the kids in the room, I'm not going to go any further than that. But then it moves to passion. Passion means this uncontrolled lust. Now I'm going after it. Right? You can see the progression. Now I'm going after it. And then evil desire is this whole notion now of actually not only going after it, I'm planning it. It is like part of who I am now. This is, this is all I live for. Now here's what he's, what he's doing before we get to the fifth one there. Here's what he's doing is, is Paul is saying, listen, you don't realize it, but the moment Adam and Eve said, I want to do it my way, what ruled in their life was their flesh. That's what ruled in their life was their flesh. And when our flesh rules in our life, we begin to start making our flesh the thing that has to be fed. And when our flesh has to be fed, it feeds it in its own perverted way. See, now, now when you sense that, kill that root. But notice the fifth one that he gives. The fifth one is covetousness, which is basically desiring everything God hasn't given you. Just a simple way of looking at it. Somebody could stand back and say, boy, their marriage looks better than my marriage. Why don't I have that? Their life looks better than my life. Why don't I have that? Their kids are better than my kids. Why don't I don't have a family like that? Their job's better than my job, right? You just go through life. Their car is better. Basically saying, I don't have something that someone else has, and it's either not fair, it's making me upset, I'm driving for it, I'm living for that, I'm getting angry about it, I'm pursuing it, whatever it is. Covetousness. It, it means this, that you do not walk through life satisfied that God has given you everything you need today to bring glory to Him. Right now, this moment, God is not in heaven going, ooh, totally forgot about Mike over here. Woo, sorry, Mike. Totally withheld blessing today. You could have done so much more if I had just thought about you. Right? That's not God. Could you imagine God literally doing that? But covetousness is assigning that to God. You realize that? Covetousness is saying, God, you forgot about me over here. You're really not omniscient. If you were omniscient, I would be like that person. You think about that. That's what it's saying. So he's saying, you want him. And he says, notice the little descriptor of the covetousness. He says, which is idolatry. You see, whatever you covet is what you worship. That's the bottom line. Idolatry is replacing the worship of God with something else. So whatever it is, you're saying, I need that. I want that. I don't have that. It's not fair. Why do they have this and I don't have that? Why do they have a better body? Why do they have a better this? Why do they have a better that? That's not fair. Paul's saying, that's actually what you're worshiping. Because you see, you're not saying, God... You give me everything I need today to do exactly what you want me to do to bring glory to you right now. You're sovereign. You're in control. You're God. You're a provider. You see everything. You know everything. But he's saying, okay, why is Paul making, referencing this list? He's referencing this list because he knows his own flesh. See, now here's the owl. The owl part is, yes, we are all idolaters. But here's the wow part. This is written here because you've been raised up with Christ. Wow. That's great, isn't it? You've been raised up with him, which means you've got a way to lay the axe to the root of this. And we'll talk about 
how to do that. Paul enlightens us on that. But before he does, he gives us two reasons why we want to lay the root, the axe to the root of this. Because these, this first list is really about God. This is why he says, listen, this is idolatry. These are the things you're worshiping. This is the reason why you might be struggling in your walk with God is because you've just got all of this passion and lust and greed and covetousness and it's owning your heart. Which means you're worshiping that, not God. And he wants to give us two reasons why Two reasons why we should, we should lay the, the axe to the root of this. Verse 6 is the first reason. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Verse 6 is the owl, and verse 7 is the wow. Verse 6 is the owl. God hates this stuff. There's the reality of it. Why would you run after the very thing that God says, do you realize I made hell just for the heck? Like, this is what hell is for. Why would you want to go there? Why would you want to say, hey, it's cool, I'm in Jesus, I can go play around in hell for a while. Why would you do that? He says, don't do that. That's what hell was created for. There's the out. You realize that's the behavior God hates. But here's the good news. Here's the wow. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But he's delivered you out of it, is what he's saying. There's your good news. That's exciting stuff, isn't it? Yes, this is the stuff designed for the wrath of God. But the good news is you've been raised up in Him. He's pulled you out of this stuff. And so we've got to shape our worldview to recognize this is no longer me. I do not do this anymore. This is not my life. This is not my... This is, I'm not going to be defined by this anymore. This is the stuff God created hell for. This is the stuff that, that is wrong, and this is the stuff I've been delivered out of. I've been delivered out of it. So, how do we do this? How do we, how do we deal with this? I want to just give you a little slight foretaste of how this, was, how, how, how this is dealt with, and then we're going to go on in the passage, and then in the end we'll kind of wrap it all up, and I'll give you some other practical things you can think about as you go through it. But just I was thinking about two things. I was thinking about two examples in the life of Jesus where he actually, in one sense, was tempted with these very same things. He was tempted. And he was tempted the same way in his life that we've been tempted. You know, our temptations come externally and internally, right? Isn't that true? Our temptations come externally and internally. Externally meaning somebody comes and throws something our way or an event happens and you go, wow. Right? That becomes tempting. You, you, you get in somebody's car. You didn't think about buying a new car. Then you get in somebody's car and you're driving their car and you go, wow, that is a really nice car. And then you get back in your car and you go, wow, this is a really lousy car. I like their car. I wonder what i got to do to get it. And all the, It's an external temptation that comes over. Or there's internal temptations. I don't know where they come from. They're just bubbling out of you. Two, time, in, in, two examples from the life of Jesus, just really quickly here. The first example is in Matthew 16, when, uh, when Jesus did that whole uh, thing with Peter, you know, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. And then he says, okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter's response is, no way. You cannot go to Jerusalem. They'll kill you. And what was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Why? Your intent is not on God's intent. 
You're, you're not thinking the way God's thinking here. So the external temptation comes, but the mind of Jesus was so fixed on the intent of the Father, he could recognize when a temptation was coming that was pulling him away from the intent of the Father. So he knew what the intent of the Father was. He had just said it, I'm going to Jerusalem. He was so understanding of that intent that as soon as a thought came that would push him off that intent, he recognized it as a temptation and said, get it out of here. So, so the external temptation, he fought that off by knowing the intent, the mindset, the plan of God. Second example comes at the end of Jesus' life. He's there in the garden, and he's praying, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to be tortured. He knows he's going to be accused of you know, being horrible, the devil himself. And then he knows that he's going to bear the punishment of God. He's going to be forsaken of the Father. I, you know, the only context I can put this in is he knows he's going to face the fires of hell. That would be a huge internal temptation, wouldn't it? To say, hmm, that's kind of big. That's kind of big. And he faces it. Internal comes out. If there's any way this cup could pass before me. But, how did he finish it? Not my will, but your will be done. You see, he not only knew the intent of the Father, he knew the will of the Father. Same thing, but, but slightly different. Because why? Here's the difference. He not only knew it, when he was pushed, he was committed to the will of the Father. He knew the intent, and he was committed to it. And because he was so committed to it, that when the internal temptation comes up, he deals with it. He deals with it. Those are just two examples of how Jesus dealt with the very things that, that, that could make you say, wow, yeah, I don't want to die. Yeah, I don't want to. I'm God. I shouldn't be called the devil. And I know what wrath is because I'm God. And I know what I'm about ready to face. For these people who are so clueless, who don't get it, and unless my spirit empowers them, they're never going to get it, which means they don't really love me. I mean, this is not something... They're not loving me because i got to love them first. This is like really... But yet, he's not, he does not thinking it through that lens at all. You want to redeem them? I want to redeem them. You want to go to the furthest reaches of, 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 of the furthest we can to redeem them? I'm there. I'm committed to your will. I'm committed to the end. So, the external, the internal temptations, he's dealing right there. Jesus is putting the axe at the root there. Boom, I am not letting that temptation take root. Here's what he's saying. Paul is saying, listen, these things show up in your life. And they will show up. They have shown up. They're going to be there today. They're going to be there tomorrow. What he's saying is you've got to put the axe to the root. You're dead to this stuff. And the good news is you can do it. We'll talk a little bit how to do that. But now, let's shift from our relationship with God to our relationship with others. We'll go there, and then we'll wrap it up. We'll kind of piece it all together, see what Paul says about it. In our relationship with others, notice verse 8 and 9. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See, he moves from the idea of idolatry. This is idolatry. Worshiping God. Now he says, okay, don't lie to one another. Now this is in the context of your relationship with each other. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. 
Okay, so we've got the root of sins that I'm going to be identifying when they come up in my, in my relationship with God. Now I've got a root that deals with my relationship with others. Okay, and he, and he lists a bunch of them here. Let's go through them all real quickly. Anger. I think you understand what anger is. Anger is when your temper flares up. Anger is when you get mad at somebody. Start yelling at them. Anger. Right? But then he says wrath. Wrath is different now because wrath is when anger actually turns to rage and now you actually want to do harm to someone. Right? So, so it's one thing to be angry. It's another thing now when that anger turns to doing harm to someone. And then... The third one, malice then, as he gets into there, starts saying, okay, now I'm going to actually plan it out. This anger, wrath to malice is the, uh, is the uh, plot line behind every Hollywood action movie. Guy walking home from somewhere and something happens to a family member of his and I'm mad and I will get them and now I will plot to bring them all down. Right? That's it. It's just that whole internal thing that goes on. Right? You begin to start thinking about tearing them down. And then notice slander. Slander then is when your tongue is used to do what? Just destroy them. Just destroy them. I, you know what? I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to rip them apart. I'm going to, I'm going to go after them. I'm going, to, I'm going to completely just tear them down so that there's nothing left. Slander. And then finally, obscene talk. Obscene talk can be anything from like immoral talk, but to, to the type of any talk that is anything from like condescending speech to perverted speech. It's, it's somebody who might make a derogatory comment towards a woman all the way down to just speaking in a condescending, rude, arrogant tone towards someone. It's just that type of talk that basically treats the person you're talking to like an object. Okay, so, so think about this. Most people don't realize it. They think obscene talk only in the sense of saying something derogatory towards a woman or something like that. But a derogatory statement can be just like, oh, please. Why? I am now treating you as if you are less than human. I'm going to look down upon you. Really? You know, that just sense of, it's, that is all included in that word obscene. Anytime you communicate to someone where you are treating them as less than you, tearing them down, or like an object, their, their humanity doesn't mean anything anymore. It's obscene talk. And you can see, these are the things that get in the way. But then, then notice the pullout one. Okay, he had a pull-out one on the other one, which was covetousness about God. He has a pull-out one here for us in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices. He kind of pulls that one off. Because here's what he's saying. Really, if you think about it, all these things are, are, are kind of heaped in deception. Not being truthful with people, not being upfront with people, lying to people, you know, uh, being in such a way in which you, you put off one uh, err in one direction and, and you're not dealing up front with them. Hugging them here on Sunday morning and then going into your car and ripping them behind their back. That kind of a thing, you know. How you doing? Good to see you. Ugh. You know, that kind of duality. He says, don't do that. Don't, don't lie to one another. Why? He says, you've put off the old self with its practices. 
He's saying, you know what? When you fled to Christ, you are actually casting that away. The word put off concept. Let me give you the concept behind it. If I had a bag up here and, and I pulled out of this bag a dead skunk, and I say, I just hit this on the car right over. And I just launched it into the audience here. Okay? What would you do? <laughs> Somebody say, throw it back? <laughs> right? Exactly. You'd throw it back. You'd run away. It, it would end the, end the sermon, right? I mean, it would be, be hard to recover after launching dead skunks at people. Okay? But what, what is your response? I mean, seriously, I mean, I know it's really dumb. You've got to humor me, though. Okay? If I launch that thing... You're going to run because a dead skunk, there is like zero value as a human being to a dead skunk. There's just like, you don't go, oh, totally cool. Can I have it? No one thinks that way. They just get rid of it. The reason why I'm saying this is that that idea of a, of a dead skunk is what this means. Put off means it's gone. I've got no place for this. So he says, this is really what it means to have faith in Christ. And I'm done with this. If I put it off, and I put off these practices. Okay, now you, you read that, and you hear that, and you go, okay, but I don't know if I've actually realistically sensed that as being true in my life, because I do struggle with people. I have gotten angry. I have gotten upset. I, I have torn people down behind their back. I am an idolater. You know, I mean, like, I don't see myself actually... Throwing it off. Like, I would throw the dead skunk away, Steve. Like, I wouldn't do that. But I struggle with the whole anger thing because I do get mad at people. And I struggle because I do speak condescendingly to people. And I do roll my eyes. So, how do I do this? So, Paul goes on. He's not leaving us hanging here. Look at verse 10. And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator... Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Verse 11 is saying, listen, do you understand that you, you are one in Christ? So those, 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 the barriers that came as a result of sin, right? Cultures came as a result of the Tower of Babel. All of this stuff is gone now. The, these, these ways, these markings are gone. When you are in Christ, you are one but how do I actually experience that oneness? What do I have to do? Verse 10 tells me. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So now this is the picture here. The idea is putting on the new self, being renewed in knowledge. Now let me kind of unpack this for you so you understand it. What he's basically saying is that somehow you're going to be connected to this thing. And I'll tell you what the thing is in a minute. You'll be connected to this thing that's actually going to renew you. It's going to renew you to such a degree that you'll actually start to look and act like Christ. What is this thing that you're connected to? In the ESV, they just have the word knowledge. New American Standard, I believe, has true knowledge, which is probably a little better of a translation. The word there is actually this idea of full knowledge or experiential knowledge. Okay, so, so, so the idea isn't that I'm going to have you recite a prayer and then boom, everything's going to change in your life. It actually means that you 
can actually connect experientially to who God is. And your knowledge can grow experientially. So what does that practically mean? Let me kind of explain it to you so that you can understand it in, in, its, in its fullness. Let me put it first in an earthly illustration and then in a spiritual one. An earthly one would be this. You know, you, get, you go back, uh, Heather and I were driving by the restaurant where we first met, and uh, Andrew had asked us, is that where your mom met? I said, yes, that's where we met. Okay, so, so we first met, we saw each other, and, uh, and, and, and we got introduced to each other, and that was the extent of that. Knew each other's names. Then we got to know each other a little bit more. Uh, it took me a couple of years to convince her she couldn't live without me. Okay, it took her a while. Okay, but, but when that happens, something occurs, and the relationship gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and then eventually a proposal happens, and then eventually a marriage happens. And then, next thing you know, 20 years goes by, and you're married 20 years. Bunch of kids and all this. But what happens in all that? What I know about Heather today is infinitely deeper than when I met her in 1991 or whenever it was. No, 1991. I met her then. So from that moment to today, my knowledge of her has changed. I have an experiential knowledge of her. I know her and I've experienced her. I can even anticipate how she might respond to situations. I can read a look and know, hey, that was a really dumb joke I just told. <laughs> I should probably dial it back some, you know. She doesn't have to talk with this experiential knowledge. That's what he's talking about here. You actually can enter into knowing facts about God to actually experiencing God. Now, how do you do that? We talked about that last week, what it means to keep seeking the things above. So I'll just review that. What does that mean? That means that if I'm sitting here and I'm concerned about something at church, let's say, and I feel like everything's falling apart at church, I can go back and say, wait a minute, what do I know about Jesus? He's building his church. What do I know about Jesus? He's in control. What do I know about Jesus? He's the shepherd of all these people here. What do I know about him? He's the Lord. You know what? I'm going to right now place my faith in the fact that he's building this church, that he's the Lord, that he's God, that he's in control. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start seeking that and obsessing on that. That suddenly begins to do what? Paul is saying, when I start doing that, that conforms me to the image of Christ. The problem is, is that when the trial comes and the temptation comes, we have a tendency to give in to the temptation. So I get mad at somebody, and what do I do? Well, I call somebody. You know, I'm mad at this person right now. You know what they did? Well, you know, Steve, that's not fair. They shouldn't have done that. You know, you're exactly right. After all I've done for them? Well, yeah, and you're, you know, right? Anger, 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 anger. I hang up the phone. Boy, I'm really mad at this person. I don't even know if I can go to church with them on Sunday. I better. I got to preach. I better somehow deal with this. Maybe I'll just avoid them. But that can happen, right? No one's even saying amen. You're not even going ow, right? now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. What have I done? I'm not being renewed in the new image, the image of Christ, saying, wait a minute. God died for this person. His spirit's in them. They belong to him. I'm united not because I like them. I'm united because Christ died for them. And the same spirit that's in me is in them. 
So now I've got to start thinking that way. Submit my mind to that. Who are you, God? And you know what happens? He's saying, this is the renewal that takes over. So somebody comes at you hard, I've got to tell myself, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? Bless those that persecute you. Okay, God, how do I be a blessing to this person? I'm not saying there's not a temptation to not be a blessing. I'm not saying there's not a temptation to get mad at them or to gossip about them or to go after them or to confront them in love. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that that's there in all of us, but the question is, what do I do with it? He's saying, keep seeking the things above and that renews you. And in the course of that renewal, you change. And so, if I'm discouraged about my life, I should say, wait a minute, God. You planned my days before I was born. Therefore, this day is in your hands. Relax. If I have a conflict with somebody, God, you forgave at the cross and you've given me your love. Let that love shine through me, God. See, that's the idea of being transformed. And notice what happens. He says, you're going to be transformed to the image of your creator. You'll begin to reflect God himself. And when you do that, suddenly the barriers break down. The Jew Gentile barriers, he's using illustrations from their day, but all those barriers break down. And now you become one, as he says in verse 11. You begin to start looking like that one. So there's two things he's dealing with here. Saying in your relationship with God, what gets in the way? Covetousness does. Idolatry, worshiping our own flesh. What gets in our way with our relationship with others? Anger, flesh, deception starts taking over. Saying, okay. So those are the things we're dead to. So the ow is, yes, you do it. You struggle, you're tempted. The wow is, Christ has given you the ability to overcome it. So how do we do that? What I want to do is give you some practical applications. And some practical things to think about as you go through this. I think this text, in one sense, is clear enough, right, to keep seeking the things above, to, to allow the mindset of who God is and who Christ is to, to be my mindset, to let, to let the gospel interpret my reality for me, not my emotions. I think that's what this text is teaching me. But, but let me just kind of zoom out to the whole Bible as a whole for a minute. Let the Bible interpret the Bible here and just give you some, some basic things that should undergird what is here in chapter 3. Just some basic truths that should undergird it. First truth is this. You've got to deal drastically with sin. Matthew 5, 29 and 30 says that. The reason why I'm putting that out there is that we're pretty comfortable with a lot of these sins, Right? We are pretty comfortable, pretty comfortable with bitterness. We're pretty comfortable with anger. We're pretty comfortable with covetousness. Greed is okay in our culture, that kind of thing. We don't really go after it to the level we should. You know, we go after perverts, but we really don't go after our own lusts. It's easy to condemn the state legislature for passing some law about homosexuality while at the same time coveting your neighbor's wife and, and feeling okay with that. People do that. It goes on here. I mean, you know, so Paul is saying the issue isn't there. The issue is here. Your issue is in here. The issue is not what's going on out there. The issue is here. Your relationship with God isn't because this church stinks. Your bad relationship with God or your bad relationship with others isn't because we're jerks. 
Your relationship with God is because you're an idol worshiper and your, relationship, your conflict with others is because you've got anger in your heart. I mean, that's the honest truth. That's the, that's, the, that's the ow part of it. But the wow part of it is you can deal with it. And the Bible says, man, be drastic with it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Deal with this. Do not deal with this passively. The reason why I'm saying all that harsh stuff is because I want you to realize don't be passive about it. Don't make the problems in the culture worse than the problem in your own heart. Because it's easy to look out there. I can find a lot of racist skinheads that do a lot worse things than I do. But in reality, my heart's an idol factory and I have anger just like everyone else. I covet things. And I struggle to forgive. So there's where the issue comes in. So this is why I said deal drastically. The Bible's very clear about this. Deal with it. Deal with your own heart. Second, general principle, you must aggressively renew your mind. There is no way that I could submit my thought and my, my attitudes and, and all of this to Christ if I don't know that he's building his church, that if I don't know that he's forgiven, if I don't understand the cross, if these truths aren't there for me to pull from, then I'm at a disadvantage. And this is why Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, man, you are transformed as this truth gets into your mind. Why? Because when that moment comes, like Peter says to Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem, he can say, stop it. It's not the will of God. He knows it. It's up there. And that begins to transform the way you interpret those external and internal temptations that come. And thirdly, well, actually, as you're doing that, by the way, let me give you a couple principles then. Talking about renewing your mind. I want to give you four things you could think about as you're reading your Bible. There's four things you could think about. These are just practical things that you could think about. Um, more devotional things. So this is not, you know, it's class on, on biblical exegesis here. This is just a class on renewing your mind, so to speak. Four things. The first thing is this. As I'm reading my Bible, one question I should be asking myself is, what does this teach me about the mind of God? Do I learn anything about the intent of God? When I'm reading anything in the Bible, do I get God's intent? And, and, and can I say, okay, that's what you're committed to, God. Great, I want to know that. I want to I be devoted to that. So then when a temptation comes that pulls me away from the intent of God, I can say, wait a minute, I know God's mind here. I know God's mind here. Second, what does this show me about the plan of God for this world? When things fall apart in our lives, sometimes it's easy to think the whole thing's falling apart. God's out of control. It's all going to crash and burn. Your life's going to crash and burn. And we've got to stop and realize God is in control of this world. Passages like, I've prepared good works before the foundations of the world that I want you to walk in. Whoa, that's a huge thought. That means today is not a moment where God is saying, I'm lo I've lost you. He's got a plan. So, let's learn about that plan. Thirdly, what does this reveal about the person of Jesus? I want to love Christ. I want to know who he is. I want to see his heart, his compassion, his responses to things. In the Old Testament, am I getting any foreshadowings of what the great shepherd would look like? And fourthly, how should this shape the way I engage God and this world? This is really a question about kind of worship and mission. It's about a sense of saying, 
okay, how do I then engage you and how do I live in this world knowing who you are? As we're reading the scriptures, let those four things maybe guide you a little bit and help you navigate your way through. And lastly, last general principle, the third general principle, is to humbly approach God in prayer. Philippians 4, 4 through 7 is talking about casting all your anxiety on Him. All of it, right? Not just some of it, uh, but all of it. Because He cares for you and He knows you. And so humble yourself before God and cast those anxieties upon Him and go through life in that, in that sense of, of humble casting. Those are just kind of three general principles from the Scriptures that I think should undergird this reality. But, but here's the point I want you to get at. All our relationships with God and with each other, that, that relationship with God and each other, is predicated in Christ. Christ has sealed my day with, with the Father, and now I can worship Him. Because of the power of Christ, I can deal with the, the covetousness. And, and when it begins to flare its ugly head, I can stop and say, wait a minute, I'm being greedy right now. I'm not being content. I'm grabbing for more than what God's given me at this moment. I'm going to relax. God, let me put the axe to the root of this thing right now. Kill it in me. Or when conflict happens among people, instead of running around talking to 57 different people, forgive and once you've taken that log out of your own eye, then you can talk to your brother to get restored. See, that's the root. That's what we're alive to. That's what we're dead to. And, uh, and once that's in place, our relationships are in store. Would you just join me in prayer here? Father, I thank you for this passage. Lord, it is a powerful thought. God, our relationship with you is, is marked and marred by a heart that is not content in you, but content in this world. Our flesh wants so much satisfaction. It just flares up inside of us. But Lord, thank you for giving us the power to, to deal with that to put that off, to lay it aside, to actually say, okay, I don't want to think that way. I want to trust that you've given me everything I need. I want to be satisfied in what you've provided. I want to be satisfied in my family. I want to be satisfied in you, God. In you and only you. And Lord, as the temptations come to get angry with people, and it's a struggle for all of us every day, conflict around, surrounds us, but Lord, may we deal with it. May we remember that you forgave us. May we put that aside. May we cast it away by submitting our minds to you, to the power of your cross, to your glory, so that we might be made clean and whole. We might walk in that newness of life. Lord, I pray that our relationships with you and our relationship with each other would be restored. We might walk as a restored Christian in this world. And I pray this in the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.